Headline Porn podcast. I'm Peggy Reynolds, and in this podcast, I'll be exploring some of the themes and stories behind Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. The Marriage of Figaro, or The Madness of a Day, premiered in 1786, is the first of the three brilliant collaborations between Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Lorenzo da Ponte. Ponte had had a chequered career. He was an ordained priest, but he'd been banished from Venice for public concubinage and the abduction of a respectable woman. He ended up as poet of the theatres in Vienna, where he met Mozart. He, by contrast, had been a professional musician from childhood, and he demanded rigorous dedication. In opera, wrote Mozart, the poetry must be the obedient daughter of the music. The best thing is when a good composer who understands the stage enough to make sound suggestions meets an able poet, that true phoenix. Jane Glover is a conductor and the author of the book Mozart's Women. Well, Mozart and da Ponte had known each other for about a year before they collaborated. And Mozart had been looking for a, a good libretto, let alone a good librettist, for some time. And he certainly noticed when da Ponte arrived in town, uh, he was never one to walk quietly into any community, uh, Lorenzo da Ponte. He made a big splash and got himself a nice job at court, scribbling librettos or arranging librettos for all sorts of other people. And Mozart bided his time. And when they did eventually get together for Figaro, and then, of course, the other two that followed, completely different, but each completely brilliant. The whole aspect of opera, the whole business of opera, the whole art form of opera was changed forever. In Act One, the curtain rises on a room in the house of Count Almaviva. The Count's manservant, Figaro, and Susanna are to be married later that day, and this room will be their new quarters. Susanna is trying out a hat for the wedding. Figaro is measuring the space to work out where their marriage bed will go, which is why the opera begins with numbers. It is an intriguing scenario. This is an opera about ordinary people, servants, in fact, in this case, but revealed in the most intimate way. This is the first opera that really talks about real flesh and blood human characters that we can relate directly to as opposed to, as it were, viewing from afar. David Picard is general director of Glyndebourne. It's also, I think, revolutionary in the way that the text and the music are so strongly aligned. I, I think it's quite interesting, I always think, with operas. There are certain operas where you feel you could read just the libretto and you would have something that was very strong in itself. And 
for all that Mozart adds that libretto and colours it, I think you could read through the whole of Figaro and have a wonderful dramatic experience. I think if you read through the text of a, a Handel opera, uh, you wouldn't be connected to it in quite the same way. So this, this moving forward of the operatic form that happens in Figaro and the nature of the world that it's dealing with, the topical nature of the world that it's dealing with, is something that very much points to operas that were to come 100, 200 years later. Susanna's concern with her dress suggests the importance of individual identity and self-determination. Figaro's interest in the bed is obviously about sex, but also about autonomy and freedom from exploitation, which is exactly the problem. Figaro is happy with their allocated room. If, by chance, Madame should call you in the night, din din, then in two steps you'll be there. Yes, says Susanna, and if by chance the Count should call you Don Don and send you miles off, then in three bounds he'll be here. The Count had promised to abolish the droit de seigneur, his right to enjoy the bride's favours. But now he plans to reinstate it in Susanna's case. As she goes off to see the Countess, Figaro explodes in the recitative Bravo, Signor Padrone, followed by an impassioned cavatina. Si vuol ballare. If you want to dance, then I'll play the guitar. Jane Glover. What he's saying, literally, is if you want to dance... I'll play the guitar, il chitarino le suonerò, meaning I'm going to control you. But interestingly, and so he, he sets this as a sort of 18th century classic minuet in 3-4, very stately. But the rage of this man cannot con- be contained in this minuet, and he bursts out of it into a completely different allegro. 2-4, lots of scales, lots of dynamics, Lots of sentences unfinished. Then he pulls himself back again and starts to say, no, no, I'm going to play the tune. I'm going to play the guitar. Brilliant from Da Ponte, brilliant from Mozart. And I think as good as an exposition of rage as you will ever see on stage. The Marriage of Figaro is based on a play by the French writer Pierre Beaumarchais. He wrote it in 1778, and it was a sequel to his equally famous play, The Barber of Seville. In that first play, Figaro the Barber assists Count Almaviva in his wooing of Rosina, rescuing her from the machinations of her guardian, Don Bartolo. In The Marriage of Figaro, in both Beaumarchais and Mozart, Almaviva has tired of Rosina, now his countess, and he is looking elsewhere for entertainment. Dr John Lee of Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, is a specialist in 18th century French thought and literature. Figaro is a play about love and the loss of love and about fidelity and infidelity and finally reconciliation. In that sense, it's a much denser and darker comedy than was the Barbara Seville, which is more archetypal in its structure, in its language, in its theme. The the Barbara Seville is, in some senses, a Spanish play, although it remains quintessentially French stylistically, um, where a, a play in which esprit is the main currency. And, and that remains the case in The Marriage of Figaro, but 
to an audience watching the marriage of figaro the, the picaresque spanish element is definitely eclipsed i think by a kind of urgent french enlightenment concern for reform that concern for reform, evident in the class struggle played out between Figaro and his master, has led critics to read this play as a foreshadowing of the events that would unfold 11 years later during the French Revolution. Professor Julian Johnson is head of music at Royal Holloway, University of London. There are certain things in the opera which relate in quite direct ways to what was going on politically at the time. Uh, this, of course, is the time of the Austrian Enlightenment, first Maria Theresa and then her son Joseph, who introduced various laws which gave more freedom and more equality to those who weren't aristocratic and took some of the rights of the aristocracy away. For example, in the opera, of course, what we hear at the beginning as the opera opens is Figaro's anger, frustration, resentment that his master, the Count, might claim the droit du seigneur, the, the right of the, of the lord, over his female servants, over Susanna, who Figaro, of course, is about to marry. And the really quite charged scenes that we have between Figaro and the Count, which seem to be about dancing, which seem to figure around really quite ordinary and everyday things, are actually about power. They're about the political rights, the individual rights of those working for the Count and his abuse of that power. I mean, this opera was, you know, three years before the French Revolution blew up in Paris. Now, Austria never went down that route, but the sense of class resentment and, and real political tension is nevertheless below the surface. And, of course, across lots of different times and places, that's often come out in humour and comedy. And, and in humour and comedy, it's acceptable, and that's how it managed to get through the censor. But it's definitely there, and there's some quite angry, uh, hard-edged music in this opera as well. The real moral centre of the marriage of Figaro are the women, the Countess and Susanna. At the beginning of Act Two, we meet the Countess for the first time. She is alone in her room, all defences down. We already know that she is neglected by her husband, but now we see the intensity of her suffering in Porgi Amor, grant love some relief to my sorrow, to my sighing. For David Picard, General Director of Glyndebourne, the music Mozart writes for the Countess is particularly powerful. The music for the Countess, I think, has an extraordinary poignancy that I, I think is almost unparalleled in, in Mozart's other operas. I'm always fascinated that it's a character that we know exists but doesn't actually appear until Act Two, so the whole of Act One goes by without us even knowing who this person is, but we know that she is there and that she exists. And then the aria with which she opens Act Two actually throws the piece into a completely different world. We're suddenly into 
a place where this extraordinarily lonely woman is lamenting the pretty terrible state of her marriage. And the two arias that she has, one in Act 2 and one in Act 3, both in their own ways, are Mozart, I think, connecting with the female personality in a very, very strong way. I mean, there are lots of strong female figures in his operas, in the Fiordligi in Così and Donna, Anna and Donna Elvira in, in Don Giovanni and Pamina, of course, in The Magic Flute. But of all those, I think the Countess is the most profound and most poignant of all, I think. The part of Susanna is as important as that of the Countess. Susanna is high-spirited, but kind, loving and honest, as well as witty and resourceful. At Glyndebourne, the marriage of Figaro and the role of Susanna both have a special place in the history of the festival. When John Christie first embarked on the crazy project of building a private opera house in the Sussex countryside, his wife said to him, If you're going to spend all that money, John, for God's sake, do the thing properly. That wife knew what she was talking about, because as Audrey Mildmay, she'd been a singer in the Carl Rosa Opera Company. And so, in the first season at Glyndebourne, Audrey Mildmay sang the role of Susanna. David Pickard. The Marriage of Figaro, of course, was the first opera presented by Glyndebourne in 1934, and in a way set the tone for what the company was to be ever since. Mozart has been core to that a repertoire and the Figaro has been a recurring feature. So in 1994, when the new opera house was built, inevitably we open with another new production of Figaro. And indeed, since that time, uh, this production this year, I think, is, is the th will be the third new production in the new house. <laughs> Count may pursue other women, but he is still jealous of his wife. Figaro, the eternal fixer, suggests a plot to embarrass the Count. This involves the Countess and Susanna dressing Cherubino up as a girl. Susanna leaves to fetch a ribbon, and then the Count comes knocking at the door. The terrified Cherubino hides in the dressing room. The Count is suspicious. Who is in the closet? Susanna, says the Countess. He will not believe her. He insists that they both depart to fetch the joiner. Susanna, who's witnessed this exchange, swiftly steps into the closet while Carabino jumps out of the window. And so, when the Count does indeed force the door, to everyone's astonishment, there appears Susanna. At the beginning of Act 3, the Count still feels that he is being duped. But he cheers up when Susanna agrees to meet him later in the garden. What he does not know is that he will meet the Countess disguised as Susanna. In an extended duet, the Countess dictates a letter arranging the assignation. It is meant to be coming from Susanna, but the Countess spells out all her own love and longing for her unfaithful husband. The Countess seals the letter with a pin, and Susanna passes it secretly to the Count. 
but Figaro notices because he pricks his finger on the pin. At the beginning of Act 4, Barbarina is tearfully searching for something. I have lost it, oh unhappy one. When Figaro comes in, Barbarina tells him that she has lost a pin that the Count gave her to return to Susanna. Figaro is appalled because he assumes that Susanna really is going to meet with the Count. And so the opera comes to its astonishing climax. In the labyrinth of the garden, and in the darkness of the night, the Countess and Susanna swap cloaks. Knowing that Figaro is hiding and listening, Susanna sings of how she longs for the embraces of the Count. The Count approaches the person that he thinks is Susanna, and his own wife hears once again his ardent expressions of love, knowing that he believes that he is addressing another woman. Susanna, disguised as the Countess, propositions Figaro, much to his horror, until he realises the truth. Figaro and Susanna embrace, but what the Count sees is his wife in the arms of his servant. He denounces the guilty pair and calls everyone to witness their humiliation. The couple fall to their knees and beg his forgiveness. No, no, he sings, and then another voice is lifted. And if I were to ask for their forgiveness? It is the Countess and she knows all. The Count is finally humbled. As he now begs for forgiveness, the Countess replies in a downward arc of music that seems to convey a blessing. Più docile sono. I am kinder. Or maybe it's just a very ordinary word. I am nicer, and I forgive you. All the cast take up her line, and this passage is more reminiscent of choral music for church than the burlesque of comic opera. These may be simple words, ordinary people, but the music tells us that this is a sacred moment. Julian Johnson. For me, one of the most important themes that comes out of the opera is this absolute quality of humanity and forgiveness that Mozart seems to draw out of uh, Da Ponte's libretto. So you have lots of people behaving foolishly or badly, and you have elements of deception, either greater or lesser. At, at times, you know, there's a sort of element of farce and who's in the cupboard and who's locked in this room and who's not, people jumping out of windows and so on. 
But in the end, and I think perhaps this is what Mozart can do uniquely, is that out of this very human tale and this very, in a way, foolish tale, a tale of folly, he brings something absolutely beautiful and absolutely profound. And the, the way the opera ends in the garden, these superb scenes of forgiveness between the different characters, lift the story to a completely different level. So as he was able to do, Mozart takes a story which on the surface seems merely comic and, and often full of buffoonery and makes out of it something that is absolutely human and gives it a kind of profundity that the story didn't seem to have. Today, more than 225 years on, the marriage of Figaro is still just as popular all over the world as it is here at Glyndebourne. Beaumarchais's play is long forgotten, but this fusion of da Ponte's words and Mozart's music, this blending of farce and the most serious human emotion, still has the power to move and to console.